we inform. Religious freedom is about people of faith being able to live out their faith, live out their convictions, no matter where they are. We equip. This is a battle of worldviews. And we activate. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. This is AFA at the Core on American Family Radio. Welcome to The Core here on American Family Radio Network. Glad to be with you today on the show. My name is Walker Wildman. Hey, if you want to check out our podcast, AFA at the Core podcast, you can go to our website, AFR.net, AFR.net, or you can go to our app, our American Family Radio mobile app. You can get it on your mobile device or your tablet and download it. It takes you about two minutes to download, and then it's free to listen to AFA at the Core on the American Family Radio app. So those are the two ways to listen to the audio. We have our website, AFR.net. Click on the AFA at the Core podcast. You can listen to the show there. Also, download the app. But if you want to watch the video, we have the show now uploaded each day to AFA Streaming. So if you go to streaming.afa.net, you can watch AFA at the core there. And then uh, lastly, we have a live streaming option up on Facebook right now and uh, YouTube. Marty, I think we're out of YouTube jail. Is that right? We're up We're up on YouTube now. They put us in timeout for about a week or two. Uh, so we're back up on Facebook and YouTube live streaming. Just type in AFA at the core. You'll find the show page on both of those platforms. You can watch the live video right now. Uh, on Facebook and YouTube, just type in AFA at the core. You'll find my show page, and you can watch the show that way. Hey, we have a special guest coming up, really, next segment and then the next segment. Uh, but coming up in about 10 or 15 minutes, we're going to have on Michael, who has been injured by the shot. He's been injured by the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, and we're going to hear his story. We're going to hear his firsthand account of how he was injured by this COVID-19 shot, a story that, that a lot of people aren't talking about. The media, the, the, the media con- conglomerates, the mainstream media, they're sure not picking it up. They're not going to tell Michael's story. So we're going to talk with, talk with Michael, um, one of our AFR listeners who's been injured by the COVID-19 shot, and hear his story about all that he has been going through. Next segment. Our scripture for the week is Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Yesterday I mentioned this, uh, I mentioned this FDA FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, and I didn't have a whole lot of details, but I do now. I do now because... Uh, <laughs> The FDA actually had to release the first trove of documents related to this FOIA request, and they did so yesterday. Well, first off, before I get into what's in the documents, which is pretty pretty damning, to be honest with you, um, this is where uh, the FDA responded in a court filing. Actually, the Justice Department, on behalf of the FDA, responded in a court filing to the public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency Group. This is the group of scientists and doctors from Yale and other major 
uh, institutions that filed the four-year request. Well, the FDA, uh, or the Department of Justice on behalf of the FDA, responded in court and claimed that it would take them 55 years to produce the data, to produce the documentation. No, I'm sorry, not even the data, just the documents. All this group of doctors and scientists are wanting is the documents. Just give us the documents, Freedom of Information Act request. Give us the documents and let us review the information for ourselves. So the FDA said they wanted 55 years to produce the documents, um, which is completely laughable. Um, well, they, they released about, uh, I don't know, 90 pages the other day. And here's what was in the first 90 pages. Folks, if this is what's in the first 90 pages, we got a ride for us. We, we got a ride coming up to see what's in the other uh, couple hundred thousand pages. The, the lawsuit is seeking 329,000 pages. Well, in the first trove of documents is some some paperwork and some data regarding the Pfizer shot. And remember, this is FDA data, all right? This is FDA information that is being released. What was released in the first 90 pages of this four-year request was early statistics, very early statistics of adverse reactions that were going on with the shot. And in this report that is dated December 1st, 2020, through February 28, 2021, a 90-day period, all of December, all of January, all of February. Cumulatively, this is reading directly from the FDA paperwork. Cumulatively, through February 28, 2021, there were a total of 42,086 case reports containing 158,893 adverse events. The FDA document continues, quote, most cases, about 34,000, were received from the U.S. The rest were received from the U.K., Italy, Germany, France, and Portugal. There's also a general overview of these adverse reactions from the Pfizer COVID-19 jab. And when you break it down, there were 1,223 deaths associated in a 90-day window out of these 40,000 reports. 1,223 people died. They're dead because they took the COVID-19 shot. And so this is, this is not VAERS database information per se. This is... Pfizer slash FDA internal documentation on confirmed reports that they're getting in their headquarters with their workers uh, receiving this data from doctors around the world that are reporting this information. And you want to say, well, how accurate is that information? Well, let me tell you, of the 42,086 case reports, by the way, that means 42,086 individuals in the first 90 days of the Pfizer shot being released, they were injured. That's just the ones that are in this 
trove of 90 pages of papers. 25,379 of them were medically confirmed. That means a doctor at a hospital, along with probably a coroner or a medical examiner, these are medically confirmed cases of people being injured by the shot. So that's what's going on in these FDA documents. And we're going to publish this. Uh, Bobby, this is the Becker News piece. Uh, I had a Reuters piece also on the rundown, uh, but they're, they're, uh, they do not provide enough information. Okay. And just for our mathematicians out there with that number of documents and 55 years divided by 12 months and so on and so forth, that means the FDA can only get 498 pages a month out the door. Yeah, which is a joke. Obviously egregious. Yeah, absolutely a joke. And well, look, they're not being questioned or they're not being requested to uh, run studies or produce reports. They're just wanting documents. Uh, and releasing documents is, easy, is as easy as gathering the documents and dropping them over to the plaintiffs or to the uh, to the um, uh, to the defendants one way or the other. So that's it's, this is not a complicated process. Um, and uh, so that's what's going on there. We're going to publish this. Bobby's going to put this on my podcast page at AFR.net. A very lengthy report from BeckerNews.com, a very lengthy report by Kyle Becker uh, about these FDA documents. So that'll be on our website, AFR.net, at the AFA at the Core podcast page. Before we end this segment, the next few minutes, I want to talk about what went on in, in Waukesha, uh, Wisconsin, a couple weeks ago with this uh, this guy who drove through a crowd, drove his vehicle through a crowd a crowd and killed six people, injured dozens other at this others at this Christmas parade. This comes days following the Rittenhouse trial, also in Wisconsin, by the way. Well, uh, the, 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 the media, they moved on from this so fast. I mean, it's so blatant that anything that has to do with someone with darker skin perpetrating a crime, they cover it up, they move on, they don't want to talk about it. But you have somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse who gets in a scuffle with a bunch of guys at a, at a riot Oh, that's, that's news coverage for 12 months minimum, <laughs> if not more than that. Or you talk about the Russia hoax, boy, they'll ride that train. They rode that train for about two years. The hoax, yes, they rode it. The news cycle rode that train for about two years, if not more than that. And this, though, one day, boom, we're moving on. But there, there's two angles here about this suspect, Daryl Brooks. In Wisconsin, there's the the angle that this fella was a hardcore lefty. All right, this fella was a hardcore lefty. He was a clear racist, or at least according to his own public statements, he had racist sentiments. He did not like white people, and he said that on his public uh, platforms, on his public pages. So that's not me insinuating that are reading into that. That's according to his own statements. He did not like white people, all right? So he was racist. And we actually have information to go on. You know, the left, they just call people racist without anything to go on. But these are public statements that Daryl Brooks made making terroristic threats towards white people. 
Okay, so that's one aspect, and that's still being investigated by law enforcement as to whether that's what drove him uh, to drive his vehicle into the crowd in Waukesha. So that's an ongoing investigation. But then you have this other angle, and that is the Democrat left-wing, quote, social justice policies that led to Daryl Brooks being able to get out on bail for, what, like a 1000 bucks, Got out on bail. And then about a couple days later, drives his vehicle through the crowd. And you know, the left, they've been saying, oh, we need, we need no cash bail. Or we need, you know, those, uh, those nonviolent offenders, you know, the ones that like uh, uh, Rob Nordstrom in San Francisco, uh, those people, they shouldn't even have to post bail. They just need to be let out. They're nonviolent offenders, right? They're not a threat to the public. Well, Daryl Brooks, he was a violent offender, and they still let him out. (laughs) They still let him out. There would be no Waukesha Christmas Parade terror attack had the justice uh, system in Wisconsin and the local district attorney and judge there taken this fellow seriously and locked him up until his trial. So that also doesn't need to be overlooked as well. So you got these two angles going on. Uh, but nonetheless, I want to play this um, uh, this clip. Uh, yeah, let's play clip three. This is a this is a black supremacist talking about how he thinks a revolution might have been started against white people in Wisconsin. Let's listen to this Facebook post. Now we'll have to wait and see because they did they do have somebody in custody. We may have to wait and see what they say about why this happened. But it sounds like possible that the revolution has started in Wisconsin, starting with this Christmas parade. Uh, now, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's something I'm missing, but it's, I said I wasn't going to speak on the rumors. Y'all are repeating some of the stuff that, you know, that has come up, and, uh, I did tell you that the initial person who reached out to me said that they believe that this has to do with the verdict. Well, there you have it. That that's a that's a black supremacist in Wisconsin. By the way, they're talking about the KKK and Rittenhouse being a racist. That's a confirmed black supremacist who said the revolution has started. Who knows if that's true or not? But this is a problem. Why is this guy not being investigated that made this Facebook post? We'll talk more about it after the break. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. The book of Proverbs is one that flows with abundant insight for wisdom. It shows that one of the most prominent qualities of wise people is that they welcome and even celebrate life-giving correction. In today's world, overrun by cultural Marxism, there is much discussion as to what segments of our society hate themselves. Well, Proverbs gives the answer. He who rejects life-giving correction despises himself. The truest demonstration of self-hatred is revealed by knuckleheads who refuse to humble themselves and embrace life-giving correction. Loving rebuke saves lives. Correction displays love. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. 
This is Raising Godly Girls Minute with Patty Garibay of American Heritage Girls. Archiving posts on Instagram is the new summer makeover. Just as teens of yesteryear used to make dramatic changes to their appearance over summer vacation, teens today are creating new identities for themselves online by literally deleting their old selves from their profiles. Before Instagram rid the platform of the ability to view other people's likes, archiving was a quick way for teens to hide posts that didn't gain enough engagement from followers. Thankfully, that vicious cycle of comparison on post likes is gone, but the expectation to maintain a curated social image still plagues our girls. If you find your girl is getting them to click archive, encourage her to revisit the words of Romans 12 too, to remind her from whom true transformation comes. Learn more about empowering girls through the love of God at RaisingGodlyGirls.com. Every American ought to visit George Washington's Mount Vernon estate south of Washington, D.C. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. We're going to be going to Mount Vernon on one of our spiritual heritage tours coming up in June and September. Wanted to let you know about these tours already because they will fill up quick. So, for all the information, go to the website spiritualheritagetours.com spiritualheritagetours.com We're going to be going to Yorktown, Jamestown, and Williamsburg as well on a separate trip. So, so much rich American history there to be experienced. Stephen McDowell of the Providence Foundation is a nationally noted historian and he's going to be with us along the way. spiritualheritagetours.com AFA at the Core podcast are available at AFR.net. Back to AFA at the Core on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Core here on American Family Radio. Hey, that explosive FDA document that I just talked about last segment, if you want to read it for yourself, read the information for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. If you want to read the document yourself, you can go to my, our website, AFR.net. My podcast page, if you click on AFA at the core when you get to our website, AFR.net, when you get there, click on AFA at the core and click on today's show, and you can find that document there. You can link through to it and read it for yourself and share it with whoever you would like to do that with. So that's available at AFA at the core podcast page at AFA.net. Um, and we have, our, we have our podcast, by the way, published on our app as well. But you can't get all this information there. You can just listen to the show on the app. Uh, but if you want to click through to links and read more supplemental information about the show, uh, you have to go to our website, AFR.net, to do that. Um, one thing I want to mention about Waukesha before we move on to our special guest uh, this segment is, you know, we've seen where CNN and other outlets, um, uh, major outlets have blamed inanimate objects for crimes instead of blaming the individual behind the crime. So if it's, but but they only do this one way, all right? If it's Kyle Rittenhouse, then Kyle Rittenhouse was responsible for what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. If it's January 6th, then it's the people who went into the Capitol, they're responsible for what happened on January 6th. But if it's a left-wing activist that commits 
a crime or someone that, I don't know, maybe they favor more, the media, then it's all of a sudden an inanimate object, meaning it's either the gun that's the problem, it's the knife that's the problem, it's the car that's the problem. You see what they do here? It goes from if it's someone they don't like politically, ideologically, they don't like their skin color, then the media all of a sudden puts the responsibility and the blame solely on the shoulders of the person, which is accurate. But you move over to people, I don't know, maybe they sympathize with more or that just fits the ideological spectrum that they lean towards. Then they start blaming the object that is used to commit the crime. One one heinous example of this is CNN last week. Listen to this post by CNN as it relates to the Wisconsin uh, attack where the uh, individual, Daryl Brooks, drove the vehicle. He drove the vehicle into the crowd. All right, The vehicle didn't drive itself. Uh, Daryl Brooks drove the vehicle into the crowd. Um, listen to this headline from CNN. Waukesha will hold a moment of silence today, marking one week since a car drove through a city Christmas parade, killing six people and injuring scores of others. Okay, so now it's the car's fault. The car drove through the crowd. No, 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 no. Daryl Brooks drove through the crowd intentionally aiming to hit as many people as possible on that evening. The car did not drive itself through the crowd. Daryl Brooks drove through the crowd. All right? And that's why he's being tried on now six homicides, six intentional homicides. All right? So, but th- this is where they are. I don't know whether the, the, the writers at CNN are this dumb. Are they this naive? Are they this political? They're probably not dumb because they work for a major news organization. I know they're not naive. Come on. So it must be that they're a bunch of political hacks who don't want to blame the person for the crime. Instead, they want to blame blame some inanimate object. So why? So we can have car control. So we can have car control and we can get the government more involved in our lives than they already are. Let's get the government involved and let's have car control. How about that? Uh, moving on, let's uh, welcome our special guest. We have on the line with us Michael from the great state of North Carolina. Um, Michael is on the line with us, and I had a, a, a Zoom call with Michael two weeks ago, and we talked about how he has had a pretty pretty severe adverse reaction to the COVID-19 shot. Michael, welcome to the core. Thank you for uh, letting me be on. Absolutely, Michael. Well, I'm not going to take your time. I'm going to let you talk for yourself. <laughs> Uh, start us from the beginning of this and just tell us um, what happened to you when you when you decided to get the shot and kind of carry us through all the, the different circumstances that you've been involved in. Okay, I'd like to give you a little of a, a background, uh, quick background. Before I got the shot, uh, I'm 65 years old and I'm retired for four years. And prior three years before the shot, I was going to the gym, working out, uh, jogging and walking uh, three times a week. No problem, no health issues whatsoever. I got the first Pfizer shot on January 20th. A few days later after that shot, I started having some chest discomfort. Uh, it wasn't really pain, but something was going on on the left side of my chest where my heart was at. 
and it felt funny. I couldn't explain what it was, and it lasted uh, for the 20 days before I got the second shot, off and on. Some days I didn't have it, some days I did. And in fact, uh, the night before I went to get the second Pfizer shot, my wife asked me, she said, are you going to get that second shot and you haven't been feeling well? And I said, well, I'm feeling pretty good tonight. Uh, when I get up tomorrow, if I'm feeling not feeling good, I won't go get it. I'll reschedule it. So actually, when I got up the next morning, I felt pretty good, won't have a no chest discomfort. I went and got the second Pfizer shot. Two or three days later, I started having moderate to excruciating pain, and uh, it was bad. So uh, I dealt with that for eight days because I thought it was a reaction from the shot, and I thought it would go away, but it never did. So eight days after the second shot, on February 18th, I went to the ER. My wife took me to the ER. I said, I can't take the pain anymore. Because I was waking up in the middle of the night. I was getting up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, walking around the house, trying to get some relief. So we went to the ER. When I told them I was having uh, chest pain, they started treating me for a heart attack. They gave me a shot of blood thinners. They gave me some adult aspirins to take. Then they did an EKG on me. They came back about an hour later. They said, the EKG looked good. We're going to let you go home or you can stay and have some more tests run. So I looked at my wife, and I looked at the doctor, I said, I think I'll stay because I'm still having pain. So I, I was admitted to the hospital, and they did uh, a uh, echo uh, echocardiogram. They did uh, x-rays of my heart. They did heart enzymes to see if the levels were staying stable, and they did uh, a stress test. At the end of the day, the doctor came to my room, and he said, all your tests came back good. We can't find nothing wrong with your heart. So he asked me, he said, has anything happened before you started having chest pain? Did anything change or happen? And I said, no, the only thing really, I got the vaccine, both, both shots. And he said, if this is the reaction from the vaccine, we don't know how to treat it. So they released me from the hospital and told me to follow up with a cardiologist. And on the way home from the hospital, I told my wife, I said, I came in the hospital with chest pain, and I'm leaving with chest pain. Nobody could help me, no, no medicine, no nothing. Hmm. So the next day I called and made an appointment with a cardiologist. I went and seen him. He looked at my records, uh, my, my test results, and said they looked good from the hospital. And he recommended a heart catheterization. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, they'll be able to look at your heart on a monitor. And if they see anything, they'll be able to see it going on. So I had a heart cath. The doctor came to my room. He said, I had no blockage. He said, my arteries were opened up. Blood was flowing. And they released me from the hospital. And that this was at this time. This was the, the, the first week in March when I had the heart catheterization. So I come home. I'm still having excruciating pain, moderate pain, back and forth, couldn't sleep. So 
in May, two months later, May 24th, and I've documented everything that was happening to me. Mm-hmm. May 24th, me and my wife were watching the news, the nightly news, and they had reported on the nightly news that two over 2,000 people had complained of chest pain as a result of getting the Pfizer and Moderna shots. And they had diagnosed that as myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle, or it could be pericarditis, which was inflammation of the lining of the heart. And I looked at my wife, and I said, "That I bet that's what I got. So the next day, I called my cardiologist, made an appointment, went back to him, and I told him what we saw in the news, and he prescribed me a heart inflammation drug called Codachine, and I started taking it. I took it for four months, hoping it would kick in and work. It never worked. I still had the pain. So last month in November, I went back to the cardiologist. I said, this drug's not working. I said, I'm not getting any relief. And I said, I'm about at the end of my rope. I said, I, I told my wife, I said, I just want to lay down and go to sleep and not wake up because mm-hmm. that's how bad the pain was. It was unbearable. So he told me to stop taking the coda chain, and he prescribed me a steroid for uh, heart inflammation called prednisone, and he gave me a high dose. So I started taking it. Within a week and a half, I started feeling relief. I started feeling better, and I've been on I've been on it now a month, and I'm I'm probably ninety percent back to where I should be. Mm. I'm still having a little uh, minor to moderate pain sometimes, but nothing like I was having the excruciating pain. And so it is working for me. Mm. But I can say this: the shot for me was the worst thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. And I regret getting it. And even even the cardiologist, when I first went to him, he kind of gave me the impression he didn't even think the shot was causing my problem. But now he's told me, he's diagnosed me with pericarditis as a result of getting the Pfizer shot. And uh, I've had all my records and uh, tests released and sent to VIRS mm-hmm. reporting system. And... Uh, so that's where I'm at right now. So I'm doing better. But if they'd have known about this back in February when I went to the emergency room, yeah, they, you know, they could have tried me on this drug and it would have helped. I'd have probably been way over it. But it was just a bad decision for me, and uh, I won't take. I won't get the booster. My cardiologist says don't get the booster. You had a severe reaction from it. Mm. Just don't take any. Take it again. So that's where I'm at now. Yeah, you know, Michael, it's 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 one thing. I mean, ultimately, you made the decision to get the first shot and the second shot. Yes. But, but, but Michael, yes. you don't need to be too hard on yourself here because the world was fed bad information, all right? Right. The world, including you and I, I mean, I was this time last year, I was going, man, this vaccine program's looking good. Um, yeah. But, but because we didn't have enough data to go on and – and anyone to dare question the shot, especially a year ago, goodness, we just launched it. Uh, anyone to question it back then, well, you were just an anti-vaxxer, and we're just gonna we're gonna discount you. We're gonna bring you down off all these platforms, and you're not even gonna yeah. have a place to talk. So a lot of people were in a in a tough situation where, okay, so they say it works, but we don't have the data to look at. So what do we say here? 
But now we have right. the information, Michael, and um, yeah. and I'm, yeah. I'm thankful that you're doing better. Um, that's good to hear. I know there's a lot of people that aren't doing better. They're still struggling right. with these, these after effects. Uh, but I appreciate yeah. you coming on my show, telling us your story, and uh, and God bless you, Michael. Thank you very much. All right. There you have it. That's uh, Michael from the state of North Carolina. And, uh, you know, out of all the uh, the handful of individuals that Bobby, my producer, and I have interviewed as it relates to these adverse reactions, um, off, the, off the record, off the air, by the way, this is the first one we've we've had on the show, uh, but Michael by far had the most detail. I mean, you just heard that. Michael has been tracking, keeping records of all of his health checkup checkups, his appointments, what are doctors giving him when he goes to these appointments, when he gets put in the ER, what tests are they running, and all of his records have been submitted to the VARES database, the Vaccine Adverse uh, Event Reporting System, which is, by the way, a federal database set up by our own government um, and and run by the Centers for Disease Control and the FDA. Uh, so Michael's information has been put into the VAERS database. Um, and according to the FDA documents that I talked about last segment and early this segment, the FDA, they've known about this, all right? So let's don't cut the FDA slack and go, well, you know, we're still getting the studies. No, no, no. The FDA knew, they knew there was a problem from day one. As a matter of fact, at least we know for sure the uh, pharmaceutical, one of the pharmaceutical subcontractors uh, that works for Pfizer out in Texas, they were having horrible reactions. People were having horrible reactions to these shots during the clinical trials, even before this went public. And we talked about the uh, director there that got fired because she raised concerns. And then they later go ahead and cover up the data. Um, but, but these uh, companies and the FDA, they knew about these adverse events before this shot went public. They knew about this from before this shot went public. From the early days of the clinical trials, there were adverse events. There were vaccine injuries from, the, from day one of these clinical trials. There were vaccine injuries. But it got swept under the rug. The FDA didn't do anything about it. The big pharmaceutical companies didn't do anything about it. They pushed this thing through. They rushed it through, right? Operation Warp Speed. They push it to market. They have zero disclaimers on it. And they get millions of Americans to inject it into their body. And then now they want to release the data. Well, friends, the damage has been done. So when can we sue? When can America sue Big Pharma? That's the question I have. When can America sue Big Pharma? We'll be back in a few minutes. In his image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality. I loved it. I loved how biblically sound it was, all the scripture to back it up. The testimonies were very powerful. If it's a prodigal child that has just run away or one that's caught up in same-sex attraction, there's hope in Jesus. In His Image is now available on DVD and can be purchased in bulk to pass out to friends and family. Order today by visiting afastore.net. So Hannah, she's just one of the women who did struggle with infertility in the Bible. Hannah's Heart with Ann Cockrell and Kendra White. Hannah took her pain to God and God heard her and was with her. 
Hannah's Heart helps couples process infertility and miscarriage through a biblical lens. Join us Saturday afternoon at 5 Central on American Family Radio. Find the podcast at AFR.net. The church is growing big time in Latin America, and here's why. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International. If you follow groups like Barna who measure church growth in America, they'll tell you it's somewhat stunted. In fact, it may have even dipped here in America. But it prompts you to look at where is it growing around the world. It's in places like Latin America because people are willing to suffer for the gospel. Let me tell you about a church outside of Caracas, Venezuela. They are rescuing women who are kidnapped and forced into prostitution by the drug cartel. They're serious about this. In fact, one of the members was killed by the cartel. His corpse pulled behind a truck to make an example to other Christians to stay out of the way to the cartel. But I can tell you this church is focused on what they believe God has called them to. And they have led more than a hundred women, former prostitutes to faith in Christ. And these women are needing Bibles because they're non-existent in that part of Venezuela. Please, at $5 a Bible, make your most generous gift by calling 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or give at sendbiblesnow.org. That's sendbiblesnow.org. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consult Consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. AFA at the Core podcast are available at AFR.net. Back to AFA at the Core on American Family Radio. Welcome back to AFA at the Core here on American Family Radio. Hey, if you just missed that interview, or even if you heard it, with Michael from North Carolina, a good uh, longtime listener of American Family Radio and someone who suffered... Um, a vaccine injury there in North Carolina, healthy in his 60s, working out three days a week, running, exercising on the treadmill at the gym, gets the shot a year ago in January of 2020. I'm sorry, January of 2021 this year and has been out of commission ever since, uh, going to doctor after doctor after doctor and finally getting diagnosed with a vaccine injury. Um just in the last four to six months. Um, So that's what's going on there. But if you want to hear that entire interview, you can go to our podcast page at AFR.net. Go to AFA at the Core podcast page at our website, AFR.net. And you can also share that interview with your family and friends. Let them hear Michael's testimony uh, directly from Michael himself. Hey, I want to welcome to the studio and to the line, Rob Chambers, Executive Vice President of AFA Action, and Debbie Wethnow, uh, Vice President of Voter Resources with AFA Action and also President of iVoter Guide. Hey, uh, Debbie and Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Walker. Great to be here. Thanks, Walker. Yeah, glad to. Uh, yeah, I did. I did the thing that I hate that other hosts do, and that is introduce two people at the same time. 
and then they have to figure out who's going to talk first. But well, I just you said it. Debbie first, so I, I did say Debbie. So she and she, ladies first. That's right. Ladies Ooh, first. Well played. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, Fine right, job. Debbie's always on her toes. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, Debbie. Uh, tell our listeners. Most of our listeners have probably actually used the voter guide in recent years, as as AFA and AFA Action have promoted it for several years now. Uh, but give our listeners a little bit of history of how our voter guide began, when AFA got involved, and kind of where we are now. Sure. Um, I voter guide began in 2008 in Texas as an online personalized voter guide, but just for voters in Texas. And we did a deep dive on candidates on the entire ballot in Texas in seven largest counties. So from the top of the ticket at president or governor down to uh, JP and district judges and things like that, but only in seven counties using the unique philosophy that we can get into a little bit later. Um, and we were in Texas in 2008, 2010. And after that election is when our founder, Richard Ford, realized Texas was doing okay, but the rest of the nation needed some help. So um, they pulled back and didn't go quite as far down ballot, but then went nationwide. And it was at that time that Richard met with Don Wildman, who you're very familiar with, who really captured um, Richard's vision and said, make it happen. And we have worked with you fabulous guys over at AFA and AFA Action since 2011, as we went nationwide in 2012. And um, we've just done this personalized voter guide. It's been available nationwide for federal candidates in all 50 states, and then always about a dozen states where we did statewide and state legislative candidates. 2020, we did that in 21 states and were used by um, 3.5 million voters. And real excited as we link arms with um, AFA Action and really uh, join forces to really make a huge, a bigger, huge impact in this critical year of 2022. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the main reasons I have you two on today is that we've just joined forces. For those who don't know, maybe you haven't been listening to AFR today, but uh, we have just joined for forces, meaning AFA Action and I Voter Guide are now under one organization, AFA Action. Uh, so I Voter Guide is now a division of AFA Action. We're working together. Uh, to get this voter guide now into more hands, uh, hopefully aiming to reach about 5 million, at least 5 million voters in 2022, and then 7 million in 2024, and hopefully exceed that in those two years. Uh, so that's what's going on today, and that's what we're announcing. Uh, Rob, this is this is truly a game changer, the iVoter Guide, because uh, we were listening to David Barton at an iVoter Guide luncheon a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how a lot of these local races are won by a dozen, two dozen, a hundred votes. That's right. Flip a race. So talk a little bit about the critical uh, nature of getting the voter guide into the hands of as many people as possible. Well, I think sometimes some reasons people don't go vote is because they don't realize they don't realize that they are uh, uh, who the who the candidates are in the in the race, for example. So they know who. This is to what David Barton was saying. Uh, people know who the who's running for president. Uh, who's maybe running for you know large races like that, or even governor, for example? But they don't know who's who their uh, senator or uh, state representative would be. They would not know who's uh, running for mayor or even uh, school board, uh, for example. So what what the vision is for for AFA Action and I Voter Guide is to expand uh, the the uh, coverage of candidates uh, for the voter guide. And basically, we the, the 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 concept is is if you get more information before the voter. They're going to be a more informed voter, and they are. They're also going to be more uh, confident in the in the vote that they cast. Mm. So we want people to be informed, and uh, and we think that as they're more informed, they're going to that's going to increase the chances that they actually go vote. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Debbie, um, I'll admit, you know, sometimes uh, we just had a local race for um, – for a county supervisor mm-hmm. uh, where I live, and you know, at the now there was a runoff, but the first go around, you know, there's five, six, seven people on on the ballot, and I'm like, man, I may know two of these guys, but I don't know seven, and I know we're probably not at county supervisor level yet, but nonetheless, the principle still applies even at state legislator level, state senator. Uh, talk a little bit about the work and the detail that goes into preparing all of the information on uh, the voter guide resource page. Well, iVoter Guide is not, if you've never seen it before, it is not what you would expect. I say it's not your mother's voter guide. It is a deep dive into uh, what a candidate has done, not just what they say they're going to do. So we look at their actions. We have downloaded the campaign finance data, not just from the Federal Election Commission for federal candidates, but for any state where we go to statewide or state legislative, We've gotten the data from that state, from Texas, Mississippi, North Dakota, um, to see not only who supported the candidate as a candidate, but who has that individual who is a candidate given their money to, maybe even before they were a candidate, because what they do with their pocketbook tells a lot about what's important to them. And we're really trying to find out not just what their positions are on a couple of issues, but we're looking for their values, their worldview. Um, what drives them to seek power and what are they going to do with it once they receive that power. So we look at campaign finance data. If uh, somebody's ever held office, we look at how they voted. It's called a scorecard, and there are hundreds of organizations that score candidates on a a wide variety of issues. We gather them all into one place. Who's ever endorsed them? And then every candidate gets the opportunity to answer our issue survey that's broad-spectrum we provide that all into one place. And then what makes iVoterGuide really useful, and I think, honestly, um, very usable and easy to use, is that we have volunteers who look at all that data and rate each candidate on a seven-point scale from very liberal to very conservative. We show it on a gas gauge on your personalized ballot. Um, and it's a real easy way for voters to compare candidates side by side in the example that you gave, Walker, mm-hmm. of a party primary, for example, when you've got a whole bunch of Republicans running against each other, who in the heck are you going to know, you know, that shares your values, things right. like you think. And that's where iVoterGuide's deep dive really gives you something that's very helpful. Yeah, I call it the most comprehensive voter guide in America. So that's my endorsement of it. And I, <laughs> I may be a little biased, but I'm also objective. And this is an absolute uh, key voter guide heading into 2022 and all the elections to follow. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, AFA Action, what makes this such a game changer is AFA and AFA Action have done a really good job keeping voters up to date on what their elected representatives are doing in real time, meaning what's going on in Congress, what's going on in the Senate, maybe what the judicial branch is doing, the executive branch. But that's that's uh, after the election and before the election. Uh, but what we've been missing uh, as far as putting the whole puzzle together and having everything in between elections and covering the elections, all that information put together. So that's what we're going to work on here at AFA Action. Thanks, Rob and Debbie. Thanks, Walker. Thanks, Walker. All right. Talk to you all later. Uh, there you have it. That is uh, Rob Chambers, Executive Vice President of AFA Action, and Debbie Wethnow, also a Vice President of AFA Action and President of the iVoterGuide Division uh, of AFA Action. Um, and so that's what that's what we're working on over at AFA Action. And by the way, I am, as of about two weeks ago, I'm the CEO of AFA Action now. 
Uh, the board approved me to be chief executive officer of AFA Action. Uh, so that's another reason why I'm a little biased uh, touting the iVoter Guide and all the good work that we're doing over there. This is absolutely critical. And there's a lot of bad news out there, and we can we cover some of the negative news on the show. But, folks, there are great patriots around this country, and I'm not talking about myself. There are great patriots around this country that are fighting to take this country back. Um, and that's what AFA Action is doing. That's what Debbie Wuthnow, Rob Chambers, and, and all, all kind of people across this country are working behind the scenes to take this country back. Uh, so you may get kind of down and out looking at what Biden's doing and looking at what some of these local officials are doing, some of the bad things they're doing. And all that stuff's important. We need to pay attention to it. We need to respond to it. But we also need to be on offense. We need to be planning. We need to be strategizing. How are we going to take this country back? What's this country going to look like in 20 years? What's this country going to look like in 50 years? What things can we do? To, what things can we set in motion to shape the future decades to come? We can't get short-sighted. We can't just think about tomorrow or today. We've really got to plan out and do some long-range planning to take this country back, and that's what we're doing over there at AFA Action. And if you want to support our work, go to afaaction.net. Uh, you can see... The announcement there right at the top in the breaking news bar, you can see the iVoterGuide announcement there at afaaction.net, but you can also donate to AFA Action there. It's a 501c4, and the gift is not tax deductible, uh, but AFA Action still needs your donations to support all of the uh, research and all of the work that is involved with producing the iVoterGuide, which we'll have out in 2022 as we head into the midterms and we'll have that for you and your family and your church members, everybody that can use that uh, to help them be a more informed voter. So that's what's going on over there at AFA action. And Bobby's posted that URL, afaaction.net. He's posted that URL at uh, my podcast page at afr.net. So the one-stop shop for all things, the core is the podcast page at afr.net. Uh, jumping back into the news of the week, Came across this story out of um, <clears throat> Australia, and I really didn't believe it when I read it, but it's true. It sure is true. Uh, Australia's just been going bonkers on this whole COVID-19 panic. And, you know, we thought America was in a tough situation with our terrible leaders making bad policy decisions affecting millions of Americans. Well, Australia's no different. Australia is no different. They've started these encampments, these quarantine camps. They've started quarantine camps where they're forcing people to go to a camp under lock and key to quarantine, not just if you're sick, but even if you come in contact with someone who's sick. So they took it a step farther, so much for staying at home if you're sick. Australia is bussing people out to a camp in the middle of nowhere and putting them in like FEMA trailers. What, what's the version? America's version of FEMA trailers is what Australia is doing. They're putting them in trailers and leaving them there for two weeks, three weeks uh, under quarantine, under arrest, not even house arrest. This is like FEMA trailer arrest in Australia. Uh, Bobby, this is shocking. And... You just don't believe it when you read it, but it's going on more specifically in the Northern Territory mm. in Australia. Off to the gulag. Time for re-education. Yeah, and, and it's not that this is why we have to fight back. And you guys, my listeners know this. You guys are up to speed. You know what's going on. You share our values here at AFA. But um, we have to push back against the mandates. 
against the government overreach because one thing leads to another, and one thing I, we, we can all agree on is that the Democrats are never satisfied. They're never satisfied with their policy advancements, oh, the terrible policy advancements. They don't just do one thing and then they kind of back off like Republicans seem to do. It's all or nothing. And then when they get everything they want, then they keep going for more. Uh, that's kind of like what tyrants do or dictators do or communist regimes do. They always go for more. And uh, that's why we have to push back and fight back and regain the ground that has been lost. Speaking of ground that has been lost, you know, many private companies, uh, we have the whole government mandates thing going on, but we got private company mandates too. And this is just as much of a problem around the country. The PGA, uh, Professional Golf Association, the PGA Tour fired one of their reporters after denying her a religious vaccination uh, 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 agreement or exemption. She's pregnant. Uh, this young lady, Taryn Gregson, was a reporter for the PGA Tour. She says that she was fired last Friday as she was charged, uh, as she charges the tour with violating her freedom of religion. She says on Friday, I was fired by the PGA Tour. I was in need of religious exemptions from their vaccine protocols of masking and testing. Gregson explained on a Facebook video, they would not accommodate me in such a way that I did not have to violate my religious beliefs. So not only did she have a religious, a sincere religious exemption to this shot, or a religious objection to the shot, but she also was pregnant. And we just heard last segment what happened to Michael 65-year-old, perfectly healthy from North Carolina. He's had a vaccine injury that has put him to the sidelines for the last 12 months. And they're wanting pregnant women to take this shot. They could potentially harm their baby. No, thank you. That's what Terry Gregson said. And now she's fired from the PGA Tour. So much for tolerance. Hey, AFA at the core, I'm Walker Wildman. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.